Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The best inventions have always stemmed from a vision. Great visionaries can picture a solution to a current problem or imagine turning a luxury into a necessity or maybe an innovation that changes how a future society operates entirely. And most visionaries are met with naysayers and doubters and even outright barriers or obstacles because others can't see what this visionary can. This particular inventor holds over 300 patents on items that are difficult to understand even in our technology-immersed society of the 21st century. Oh, and his first vision for the revolutionary invention came at a mere 14 years old. One of the most incredible parts of this, though, is not just his idea at 14, but the obsessive pursuit of completing this invention at such a young age. Find out what this invention is and who this person is on this episode of The Missing Chapter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Hi, this is Chad Williams of the Michigan Education Association, and you are listening to The Missing Chapter with my guys, Phil Hornder and Phil Schaff. Welcome to The Missing Chapter podcast here with Phil Hornder and Phil Schaff. Thanks for joining us on another episode that we have uh, prepped for you for today. Uh, it is season two. We, we've gotten a lot of feedback as to how we're breaking up our seasons this year. And if you're a loyal listener, you'll know that Phil and I teach world history, high school world history. So we decided, you know what makes sense, Phil? Let's just break up our seasons according to school year. So we came back in September. It coincided very conveniently with 9-11, which we did our anniversary edition for. And here we are with episode four in season two. Yeah, it's been an incredible journey so far. And um, I think I know we've said this before. Uh, in season one episodes, but the feedback I think is one of the most enjoyable pieces of this of this crazy puzzle we call the podcast. Um, we we love listening uh, to some messages that you guys send us. And uh, speaking of that, shout out to Chad Williams for for doing an intro for us. And if you're a listener and want to and be part of the show, uh, feel free to go to Anchor.fm uh, and and look us up and give us a message. Record a message on your phone, either email it to us or go right to the Anchor site on our uh, website to, to locate us and, and record a message for us in our intro. Yeah. And we had the opportunity to work with Chad this summer. He helped set up a great webinar yeah. uh, with some teachers out in the great state of Michigan. And you and I had a great time doing that. And yeah, it, you know, making those connections and, and being able to share and discuss with people in the education field or people who are just, you know, avid listeners and, and people who enjoy history. Absolutely. Has been Tremendous, like yep. you said, it's been a lot of fun. And you, Phil, you brought up nine eleven. I do want to mention something because I, one of the pieces of this um, of this podcast that we love, as I just mentioned, is is the feedback. And one of the people that that reached out was uh, my buddy Matt, and he said, "Hey, you know, I didn't realize that you were old enough in that nine eleven episode 
uh, to witness the B-29s in, at Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York. And I said, oh my gosh, did I say B-29? So I want to make a, um, a correction and, and thank you, Matt, for, for catching that because Phil and I did not. Um, I was not a witness to the B-29s. I was a witness to the B-52s. All right. Different time period, different plane. So thank you, Matt, for catching that. And along um, those same lines, Phil, sure. I was listening to an episode that we put out early in the summer, hotly contested election. And I noticed a mistake that I made, too, that I want to make sure that I, I bring up. In hotly contested election, it was a story about the island of Martinique in the Caribbean. And I referenced how close it was to the coast of Africa uh-huh. rather than South America. Slight difference there. <laughs> All right. Slight difference there is, is our students in you know, when we do a geography class will tell you. So if that was something that you noticed, I apologize. It certainly it was a was an error on my part. And I want to make sure that I correct it. But see, this is the best part, because we have we have moments in the classroom where we would say something. And we have some of the history buffs in our classroom, freshmen and sophomores and some of our seniors as well. We'll raise their hand and be like, I, can you check that? I don't think that's right. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's not. Right. We look it up and find out, yeah, absolutely, we're wrong. So I, I love that. And I love the fact that we have our listeners that are comfortable to, to reference us and or, or fact check us even and say, hey, take a look at this because I don't know if that's necessarily true. And, and that's the beauty of it. And we easily could go back in and edit some of those things out. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we should. I think we keep it and we can acknowledge it and then uh, maybe some more people will catch up on it later on too absolutely phil and and here we are it's early in the morning it's nine o'clock um you and i are getting ready to to make our next recording we're enjoying a great cup of coffee uh, from our friends at utica coffee roasting company it's a seasonal blend uh headless horseman oh it's phenomenal and what's nice is if you're a fan of anything pumpkin spiced you'll enjoy this if you're someone who doesn't necessarily enjoy the pumpkin spice, I think you'll also enjoy it because the pumpkin and the spice is much more subtle than you get in some of the other uh, brands. But it's been really good. We've we've enjoyed it the last couple of days and we're enjoying it right now. And we're ready and anxious to to release some new episodes. I mean, you and I are, are back in the swing after a long, nice summer off. Um, and yeah, let's get started. Phil. Let's do it. So I think one of the things we want to we want to change up. Uh, for season two is we're going to start giving you guys a little bit of trivia at the beginning of the episode. And then uh, to follow up at the end of the episode, we're going to give you the answer to that piece of trivia. So I'm going to give you guys a question for those of you that are at home. Uh, What was the last state to be represented by our listeners? So we're looking about, we're looking for that last final state to complete the the United States puzzle for our podcast. And uh, we'll give you that answer at the end of today's episode. So, all right, Phil, in the intro, I talked about this guy who is a, a pretty avid science, uh, science expert almost, um, almost to the point of obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh, this person was born in 1906 in Utah. He's a farmer. Uh, he lives in a log cabin home built by his grandfather. So very family oriented, um, kind of a, a typical just, you know, down to earth family. Nothing crazy special about him. It's not like they were famous for any reason uh, growing up. It's just one of those kind of families that, hey, we're, we're rooted, we're grounded, and uh, we love farming. So as a young boy, though, this this kid loved to read popular science. He loved any science magazine. He loved science books. But he was a little bit nervous, kind of tightly wound, rarely slept, and teetered almost between like fits of excitement, but then to fall off the table and go into like a deep depression. Okay. So it was something about the science, though, that that kind of, I don't know, even the mount balanced him a little bit in between those those two very extreme poles. But at the age of three, 
he's making precise drawings of the internal mechanisms of locomotives at three years old. Now, you have a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I can't imagine my kids drawing the internal mechanisms of locomotives at that age. No, and dare I say both of my my boys are quite creative. Right. Uh, and I, it, But this is on another level, I think. And <laughs> Surely is. And, you know, I love the, the fact that you touched on, Phil, very humble backgrounds. I think the majority of the people that we've talked about up until this point on the missing chapter come from those humble backgrounds. Right. And they recognize that they have a gift. Absolutely. I mean, this is obvious. At the age of three, if he's doing this, I mean, it's it's – it's obvious this person is dealing with, uh, he's brilliant. Right and, right. and he's bound to to do something amazing. So from those humble backgrounds, recognizing the gift and then being able to nurture it and produce something that will transcend generations and time and change the world that we live in. There's something very poetic about that. I'm so glad you touched on that because that's one of the, the big themes from this is that he's going he's gonna to face, as I said in the intro, some naysayers, some doubters, and he's in some people that want his idea and want his invention. And you'll find out later, they even try through patents and so forth to steal his invention. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that, that come about between this little, you know, David versus some big Goliath corporation. So we'll, we'll get into that. So we went through how, how he was at age three. At age six, he basically publicly declares that he wants to follow the footsteps of a Thomas Edison or an Alexander Graham Bell. And for those of you that obviously are, are science people, why not choose Edison and Graham Bell? Um, Love science almost to the point of obsession. And then by the time he entered high school in Rigby, Idaho, he had already converted most of the family's household appliances to electrical power. So he's really following the footsteps of Edison and Bell. Um, his, his science obsession, though, is going to pay off. And we're going to see that very shortly. So this young man, as he's growing, he's, he's starting to expand his science background. He's becoming more interested in molecular theory and motors. And as well, uh, then his novel devices like the Bell Telephone and whatever this thing is, the Edison Gramophone. Any science people out there, even though this is a history podcast, please let me know what a gramophone is. I'd, I'd rather you tell me than look it up on Google. But it wasn't the popular science magazine that inspired him to conjure up this most popular invention. It was his farming field, his potato field. Okay, so this is where it gets very interesting. At age 14, he goes to his family potato field to plow it, and boom, like most inventors, it, just a rush of visions come into his head. It was this enormous field, and to plow the whole thing at once, I mean, imagine that it would take a lot of power, it would take a lot of energy, and the tool would be so incredibly large to plow this field that it, it just it would be physically impossible, and it wouldn't be logical. That's not how you plow a field. You plow a field one parallel row at a time, and that right there is what inspired his visualization. If he could take a large image, break it into one image in a row, parallel lines, and then on the other end, put that image back together, you have yourself a television. And that's where his idea came from. So at 14 years old, we have the first person to envision what a television would be like. So just to break this down, a picture could be sent electronically, according to his, his brain at 14. Once again, this is not what I would be thinking about at 14. You could take this electronic picture, send it electronically once again through airwaves, 
broken down into easily transmitted lines and then reassemble those lines into a complete picture at the other end. All right, so this is what, what he's envisioning. But how is that possible? Well, in 1880, there's a French engineer by the name of Maurice LeBlanc. He pointed out that because the human eye retains an image for about a tenth of a second, if you wanted to transmit a picture, you didn't have to send it all at once. You could scan the picture one line at a time, and as long as you put all those lines back together at the other end, within that fraction of a second, the human eye would be fooled into thinking that it's seeing basically the complete picture. So this inventor who uses LeBlanc's idea, who is on that, that uh, tractor about to plow the field and gets that vision, his name is Philo Farnsworth. Philo Farnsworth is considered to be the first visionary for the television. What, you know, Phil, this is amazing, too. And a lot of like you can explain to me the science and the technology behind things like the camera or the television. And we've talked about this before. I have a tough time really understanding it. Oh, yeah. Admittedly, I have a tough time thinking, how can we transmit something from the other side of the world? And it comes into my household. OK. Yeah. Um, and, and when you talk about this, he's 14 years old. You're talking about the early 20th century. He has concepts from from previous inventors and scientists that he's basing it on. But you forget and you have to remind yourself that this person is such a pioneer. They really, they're creating the technology from the ground up. You don't have a lot to go based on. You have concepts, maybe the work of like an Eastman Kodak, but it's, you're creating the technology. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's, it boggles my mind that people out there are are this creative. And just genius in the, in this specific field. And it's, and it's one thing to have a problem that you, you create a solution for, but there was no problem here. Right. It was just, he got flooded with a vision by plowing a field mm -hmm. and the solution, the problem, it, it, like all of it didn't matter. It, whatever obstacles he was going to face, he knew this was his concept. Like you said, it was his idea and nothing was going to stop him. And that includes some big corporations that will try to steal his idea later on. Because remember, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but by the time, Philo dies, he had over 300 U.S. and foreign patents for electronic and mechanical devices. So let's talk about the process of how he actually got there. So in 1922, remember, he was born in 1920, uh, excuse me, 1906. So at about 16 years old, um, Farnsworth sketched out his to his chemistry teacher his idea for what's called an image dissector. Because in order to have the image sent, you have to break it down in those parallel lines like that farm field. So he's trying to explain this to his chemistry teacher, and his chemistry teacher is like, listen, I, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> and according to Farnsworth, his chemistry teacher is one of the people that he thought would understand. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he said, listen, I have a sketch pad. He's drawing it out on his, on his chalkboard, still not understanding it. He pulls out his sketch pad and says, look, there's a thing called a vacuum tube that I'm going to invent, and this is going to revolutionize what, what this image is going to be called, this television. So neither Farnsworth teacher nor anyone else around him had ever heard of this television. So it's it's one of those things like, how do you convince someone to create something that's never even been conjured up before? But and remember, the in 1920s, there was a device that mechanically scanned an image through a spinning disc. And to see this on, on YouTube, I think is probably the, the better way to, to uh, visualize it rather than me just explaining it. But there's a spinning disc and there's tiny holes cut in it. And then they project a tiny wavy reproduction of, of what that image is and they scan that and they project it onto a screen that was like the mechanical television but this is electronic this is altogether different and most of the time 
even on those mechanical televisions, an image would appear, but it would be so scrambled that no one would really make out what it actually was. So Farnsworth imagined instead a vacuum tube that could reproduce images electronically by, ready for this, shooting a beam of elect electrons line by line against a light-sensitive screen. I mean, 1922, he's planning this? This is crazy. And Phil, you know, is he doing the majority of this work? Like you're talking about shooting electrons. You're talking about creating something that's never been really created before. Is he doing the majority of this work at home? It, it, you know, he's created his own lab that he's doing these experiments on his own. That's, in? A, that's a great question. So Farnsworth, farmer boy, right? Mm -hmm. He does most of this in his bedroom goes to school and explains to this chemistry teacher. And then once he, the, once the chemistry teacher says, okay, I think you should probably do it this way, this way, they start working in, in either the classroom, but eventually he's going to get a very, very small laboratory. But before he does, he, he wants to go to school. So he enters BYU uh, in 1922, very young age. All right. But his father ends up passing away about two years later and Farnsworth is forced to drop out to get a job to support his family. So even though there was that one major, major obstacle of his father passing, he never abandoned his dream. In 1926, remember, he's about 20 years old at this point. He convinced some friends to fund his invention efforts, and then he got married. Now, I think really to show his obsession with this, this is the perfect, the perfect way. On his wedding day, his then bride, Pemi, uh, he, he brings to the side, she, he grabs her by the shoulders. She's like, Pemi, I have to tell you, there's another woman in my life and her name is television. Now, I don't know for those of you that are rom romantics out there, I would not suggest in the 21st century on your wedding day, grabbing your bride and saying, Hey, I love you, but there's another woman in my life and then her name is television. That's probably good advice. You're giving good <laughs> advice right now. Phil. <laughs> so the next year after uh, the wedding day and after convincing some friends to fund his invention efforts, uh, the next year he's working in San Francisco and he demonstrates the first all electronic television in 1927. So he's 21 years old and demonstrates this uh, for some, for some very, very famous and, and very wealthy uh, inventors uh, alike. So he's in a room. He tells his associate to press some buttons and move some slides as he directed him to make some slight adjustments. Philo is on the other end watching his vision come to life on this electric screen. And lo and behold, a very thin blue yet blurry line emerges on this small television. And there it was in the small lab. The small town farmer boy becomes what he's known as now the father of television. So this is what helps him gain more funding because now it's proven. It's not just an idea. It's not just a weird obsession. It's not just some kid who likes science and likes to tinker with toys. This kid is not only a visionary, he's, he, can, he can execute at the same time. Because really, without the execution of these visions, then you're just someone who fantasizes. Right. And you know what? The, the timeline you've laid out for us, I think, is important because you talk about going from you know, that 14-year-old on the tractor working in the field, you fast forward, it's not many years that he is is developing this technology. That in itself is remarkable, yeah. that he's able to develop that technology as quickly as he is. And then, like you said, now he's got a prototype, something where someone can actually, listen, I can explain the technology like I did to my chemist, you know, my chemistry teacher, and it was tough for him to wrap his mind around, but 
Now take a look at what that technology produces. And, and the vision that I created is now coming, you know, to become a reality. Yeah. I can imagine things are going to happen even quicker for them. You see, and that's the thing, because I, I think one of the things you mentioned earlier with all of these people, there's kind of that, that ingredient that all these people have, inventors, visionaries, and it's just there's something about them. They know what they know. And it, no naysayer, no doubter, no obstacle is going to stop them. That was Philo Farnsworth. And it helped once he became that father of television, even though he's 21 years old, this helped him gain more funding. And he's becoming way, way more competitive. And that edge is what's going to give him uh, the ability to set some industry firsts. So through a lot of trial and error, like a lot of visionaries have, he starts to make some serious headway. In 1930, the same year that Farnsworth was granted a patent for his all-electronic television, he gets an unexpected visitor by the name of David Sarnoff. He is the head of RCA, and he sent his top researcher, Vladimir Zworkin, to Farnsworth's small lab, and so began the competition. RCA gets wind of Farnsworth's invention, and they want a piece of the puzzle. They don't want him to be the father of television. They want RCA to be known as the father of television. And anybody who's, you know, as old as we are, we remember RCAs, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is like, this is the Google of that time period when it comes to television. Yeah, and I'm interested to see what you have next for us because, you know, it, when you think about patents and the competition that exists to be the person who achieves that patent, you know it's yeah. very cutthroat. Right. Because there's a lot on the line. It's the technology for that object but it's the technology that will come out of that object as well. So I mean, you're, you're, you're getting into a much bigger arena than maybe he ever could have imagined. So this is where the, the competitiveness, like you mentioned uh, just now, this is where it's going to come into play. Because remember, 1927, he invents the, and shows that the television works. RCA had invented a television as well. But that used a cathode ray tube rather than the vacuum tube, and that was in 1928. So remember those dates because this is where it's going to come down to this uh, patent battle. Um, they also did an all-electric um, camera tube in 1929, okay? But this was a delay, David and Goliath kind of battle. Farnsworth was a low-budget inventor farmer. Sarnoff was this, like, limousine, three-piece suit kind of guy. And how about this? Farnsworth, Farnsworth when he was dubbed that name of, of father of television, he even grew a mustache to mask how young he was. Wow. Yeah, so he really wanted to make sure that this was followed through. But remember, because there's such a competitive edge here, this led to trash talking, some battles over patents. Um, the battle uh, over patents lasted for 10 years and eventually, not to go too far ahead, resulted in RCA's paying Farnsworth $1 million for patent licenses for TV scanning, focusing, synchronizing, contrast, control devices. But it wasn't enough to battle a big corporation like RCA. And Farnsworth's company was forced out of the TV business altogether. Farnsworth had a nervous breakdown. Sarnoff takes his wealth and power and declares himself father of television. But in typical missing chapter fashion, we're focusing on the unknown. And most people would recognize the RCA namesake, at least in the older generation. Mm -hmm. But I would assume most have never heard of Philo Farnsworth, who is the real inventor of the TV. And after the break, we'll hear about what Philo thought would be a direct yet very unexpected worldwide effect of the tv another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks for listening to and supporting the Missing Chapter podcast. If it sounds like we're having fun and we enjoy bringing you a new episode every week, it's because we are. Not only are we having a good time, but as teachers, producing our own podcast has allowed us to connect with our students like never before. In fact, when people ask us where we got the idea to start our own podcast, we tell them our students. If you're an educator and would like the opportunity to create, produce, and maintain your very own podcast, go to our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com to learn how we can help make that happen for you. Don't be intimidated. It's easy and fun. Go to the missingchapterpodcast.com to schedule an informative and interactive webinar with us today so that you can get started on your own educational podcast for tomorrow. You'll have a great time doing it and we'll get the opportunity to work with us directly. Your hosts for the Missing Chapter Podcast, Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. All right, welcome back everybody. Now, we started this episode today uh, with a little piece of trivia. What was the last state to be represented by our listeners? And I think the majority of our listeners, Phil, would, would recognize this right away because we, we've posted on social media. We, we've talked about this a lot. The last state to be represented by our listeners in the United States was South Dakota. So I have to give a, a specific shout out to our, uh, our listener, Eric McDonald, our friend Eric McDonald. Thank you so much for being one of those people in South Dakota that, that uh, chimed in and listened. So thank you, Eric, for your support. You know, Phil, I, I, there were so many things I liked about the episode that that you just laid out for us. Um, you had someone who was so passionate about science, and the fact that he that passion translated into something that revolutionized our lives and and the world and how history played out. But toward the end of your story, things seemed to kind of unravel a little bit, and I'm interested to see how you're going to wrap things up today because. You know, obviously, the competition element of this seemed to, for lack of a better word, ruin a lot of this mm. for for him because it, it became less about the invention and his passion and his concept and more about the business aspect. Yeah. And you also mentioned right before the break that there was an indirect effect mm. with some of his innovation. So I'm interested to see what you have for us. Uh, you know, that you kind of uh, set the stage for prior to the break. So you bring up a lot of great questions. And I think some of the some of the questions are, are going to be very similar to what the listeners have, too. And I, I, I'll, I'll sum it up like this. It was something that um, Philo Farnsworth had inside him that, that I spoke about earlier, that he just he had this innate desire to bring this idea to completion. Um, and once he got hit with those obstacles, it was almost like that competition awoke something in him. Mm-hmm. Because there, there was certainly a fire there. There was certainly a passion there. But once these other, uh, I don't know, business people, I guess you could say, came in and tried to steal his idea and become the father of TV, which he he knew he was, that's when it, he just kind of like, all right, this is my, this is my baby. I'm going to protect it, that kind of thing. Now, based on your research, Phil, I mean, he developed this concept and this, this idea at a very young age. Was his goal then just to simply see it developed and come to fruition. Was he out to gain a lot of money and notoriety 
I mean, did it change over time? Did any of your research kind of give insight as to what what were his goals later on? It's funny because you know you think of some of these some of these entrepreneurs. Yeah, um, Gillette being one of them. That was kind of the, as I'm reading this, I was like, man, it kind of sounds like uh, Gillette. Just like one of those days, he's shaving and he says, "Oh, I think I have an idea," and he yeah. could actually picture the invention himself. And then he called his wife and says, "Hey, you know, we just figured out our fortune," right? And, and becomes obviously a multimillionaire. I never saw that in, in Philo Farnsworth. I never saw his motivation being mm-hmm. monetary. I never saw his motivation being fame or becoming a, a big corporation. It was never really like that. And it's interesting in all of the research, even some of the the, the sites that are still available and some of the, the uh, documents that are still available directly from him, there was nothing there that really said his his ultimate goal for this is to uh, seek notoriety. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's interesting. It's almost like that that farm boy mentality still right. stuck with him all the way through. It was just his concept that he wanted to come to fruition. That that I think is is very uh endearing an endearing quality yeah. of him. Well, that tells a lot about his character and a lot about, you know, essentially who he was. Yeah. And because of the of this concept, he ends up developing way more advances than just television alone. So for example, you got to think of the time period too cuz after uh the Philo television there's widespread advances in television imaging. So give you an example. In London in 1936, the BBC introduced the high-definition picture, which is completely different than what we consider high-definition now. But uh, broadcasting is going to be developed in the, in the U.S. in 1941 with color transmissions. Then you have, during World War II, Farnsworth takes some of his ideas and actually really blows it out of the water. His company makes even more huge advancements. Like, how about this? The basics of radar, blacklight for night vision, uh, which you could think about the battlefield and how how you know important that is infrared telescope, but it's interesting. Even with the patent money that he received from RCA, and despite Farnsworth and his company's inventions, he he just had trouble keeping pace. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't the big corporate media guy. He wasn't uh, or the the big corporate business guy, I should say. He sold his his company to uh, a company called ITT in 1949. That stands for International Telephone and Telegraph. So even though he had all of these ideas, his business tactics just weren't up to par with his ideas and eventually had to had to sell. But there's some other things that I think his legacy leaves. Like he patented other inventions. I told you at the very beginning that he had over 300, 300 patents, uh, including the, the cold cathode ray tube, an air traffic control system, mm-hmm. a baby incubator, the gastroscope, the first, uh, albeit primitive, electronic microscope. So, and, and then in the 1950s until his death, he had a lot of interest for whatever reason in nuclear fusion of all things. And in fact, in 1965, he patented an array of tubes called fusers and it produced a 30 second fusion reaction. So, I mean, this guy was just a brainiac of all brainiacs, but it, it's interesting. Like, you know, you think of an Elon Musk who is an innovator and, and, um, uh, visionary, you know, some of his his business practices might be a little eccentric because he's like, oh, I want to make a I want to make a bulletproof truck. Right. Well, why do you want to make a bulletproof? Because it's cool. Yeah. You know, is it is it business sound? Maybe not, but we're going to do it. You know, it's one of those things where these visionaries just say, hey, I want to do it because it's 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 what he envisioned. And I think to answer the second part of your question, though, is what was that indirect um, effect of his invention? I saw this quote and I said, this is, this is unbelievable. Farnsworth, very similar to some other inventors, had some 
I guess you could say utopian fantasies about what his invention would would uh, would bring. He he thought there was going to be a worldwide impact, and it wasn't on entertainment, it wasn't on bringing news to people, but it had to deal with war. Here's the quote. With his invention, he said, if we were able to see people in other countries and learn about our differences, why would there be any misunderstandings, he asked. War would be a thing of the past. And now it's what's very interesting here is we could almost pinpoint the advent of TV, not that it's a unifying factor for other cultures, but it could be one of the most divisive devices that we have now because i mean think of the of our phones and how much how much video is filtered into our eyes and how much you know how much we hear and see and uh specific channels to to dictate what the way you're thinking and it's just i i thought that was very interesting he had this utopian idea which <clears throat> when you look at it for face value makes total sense right if we learn more about the cultures around us then we would have more empathy for them we would have uh more or less misunderstandings, we would have more understanding uh, for their cultures, but it, it just it just never came to fruition. No, and that's sad. You think about what a, a Farnsworth, if he were alive today, how he would feel about how things have right. have played out and how technology has advanced and the impact, like you said, Phil, has had on on our culture and really the global community. Yeah, hundred percent. And he never really had good health. Uh, he was always struggling with, with some bad health. He ended up di dying of pneumonia in 1971 uh, before he could complete his fusion work. But obviously, that wasn't his, his life goal. It was <clears throat> with TV. So the average TV set sold that year included about 100 items in 1971, give or take, originally patented by him. So today amidst cable and satellite and digital, HGTV and all sorts of TVs that are out there right now, he is the one, though, that gets the reputation as one of the fathers of television. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.